Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, as we um, have gathered now and have worshiped you in song and have heard your promises and we've sung these, we've even preached these in a way to one another with song. Uh, Lord, I pray as we now um, come to you to have your word preached, to be proclaimed and heralded as news. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, mine as well, Lord, um, so that this would be done faithfully and also, Lord, um, fruitfully. Lord, we pray that our hearts would hear your word the way that sheep respond to a good shepherd who has already died instead of them. I pray that you do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. We're going to be uh, reading from 1 Samuel 21 all the way to 1 Samuel 22. Two chapters. Two chapters in the life of King David. King David has already been anointed as king by the word of the Lord. And uh, he has been established this way by the word of the Lord, except he's not yet been crowned king. He's not been yet put on a, a throne, and the people are not recognizing him as this king. And so there's this glory of him being an, uh, anointed as king. And that follows this very humble picture that we saw of, of David as shepherd, the youngest of his father's sons, in a family that is not particularly wealthy, a poor family. He's a humble shepherd, and he gets this very glorious promise, and it comes from the mouth of the Lord. It can be trusted. It is certainly going to be true. This promise of glory that he will reign over God's people, essentially that God will give his people to David as a possession for David to redeem and reign and save these people for their good. And so followed after this humble position that David is in, he now finds himself with a regular place at the king's table. Something most people would have been jealous of. This is a pretty special thing, pretty glorious honor. He was promised to be the next anointed king, the little M Messiah, with a little C, Christ, of God's people. And then after that, he finds himself between Israel and a great enemy, Goliath of Gath. He defeats him, leading all Israel to rejoice and sing songs in his honor. He was placed then over all the armies of Israel, very prestigious position. The hand of the Lord was clearly upon him. All that he did for the people of Israel, all the battles, God gave him not just victory, but decisive, embarrassing victories. But that glory is now far from David, and he's on the run. He is persona non grata. He flees for his life. He's in exile with the promises of glory from God still unfulfilled. A very real threat that he might die before those promises are realized. Of course, God does not lie and he cannot break a promise. So that will not happen. 
in many ways, you could say that his life was better before he was anointed king. Before he was anointed as the little M Messiah of God's people. He and those who loved him, those who were loyal to him, are now not even welcome in Israel. So what is life going to look like for them while they are in exile? Dearly loved brothers and sisters, we are the people of Jesus Christ, the son of David. David is the Messiah whose throne Jesus inherits and fulfills. And so we too have a glory promise to our Messiah, which we're going to share in, but we now find ourselves exiles. There is this humility and suffering and storms and shame for those who trust in the Messiah before he returns. When we are strangers on this earth and we are longing for home. We're longing for the day when the Messiah will come into his kingdom with glory. When he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so God intends this word from his word. He intends this word to shepherd us. He intends to shepherd us with this word. To see what his people who are exiled with and for his son can expect so that we're not surprised and confused when this happens. I thought Jesus was a great and glorious Messiah. Why am I being ashamed? Why am I suffering for being one of his people? He is clearly telling us through this passage that nothing has gone wrong. This is part of God's plan for the Messiah. It always was. That he and his people would experience a time of suffering and shame before he comes into his glory. We need to know what life is like as chosen exiles. Because life is an exile, as an exile, is actually difficult, and it's painful, and it's filled with sorrow. To live in a world that is not your home, where you are a, a stranger. Because the, as the world hates Christ, it will hate you. Until he comes in glory, this world will not be your home. And But what makes the pain even worse is confusion about the pain. If you think this is not how it should be, then you will always be confused and you will be terrified and pain will cause you to despair. If you do not know what this pain says about God's promises and care and love. So this passage is a balm for us to cut through the uncertainty of life as a beloved exile who belongs to the Lord's Messiah. And so what comfort is there during our exile? And also the question is what comfort awaits us at the end? It brings us to our first point. 
But I want us to see as we read from 1 Samuel chapter 21, I want us to first see this, the provisions for the king and his people. That's our first point, the provisions for the king and his people. And I want us to notice in the first portion as David is on the run and he has men who have entrusted their lives into his care and he's on the way out of Israel. He's on the way into exile, essentially. He's given provision for himself and for his men who have entrusted their lives into his care. And I want you to notice, where does this help come from? Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I sent you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, there, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Himelech, then, then, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth beyond the, behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. We'll stop there. So David and the men entrusted in his care, they're on the run, essentially heading into exile. And when the priest says to him, why are you alone? He's not saying you are literally just one man. He's saying, I would expect you with a greater band of men because you are the one in charge of Saul's army. What are you doing here? So on his way out of the, the country, David sees, he, he seeks provisions from Ahimelech the priest. Now, the temple has not yet been built. David's son Solomon is going to build that. The temple has not yet been built. And the tent temple, the tabernacle, which the Lord designed and commanded his people to, to set up, is actually only partly in effect. The Ark of the Covenant, which is the key centerpiece of the, the temple, of the tabernacle, it was not there in Nob, but this was at least a partial temple. Sacrifices would have been offered. There would have been priests serving there. And the Lord God set it up that this would be the place where David would find provisions. And if you've read through the Psalms, which is the songbook of the Bible, you'll notice that many of them are actually written by David. You'll also know 
that a good number of them are written sounding like love songs for the temple. The temple was the place where God in his glory dwelt. Yes, God's throne is in heaven. And yes, God is everywhere present. He is omnipresent. And yes, God could not be contained in the temple. But the temple was supposed to be the place where God's people could count on meeting with him. There was a promise associated with that. There was a covenant promise associated with that. You can count on meeting me here. It was the place where sacrifices were offered to cover their sin so that they wouldn't walk into God's presence as guilty rebels with sin unpaid, but instead could walk in as forgiven children. It was designed to be the place where a holy God could not just be terror, terror, uh, terror to people, but where a holy God could be enjoyed and known by sinful people. The presence of the Lord was the sustenance, the food of his people. One thing I desire, saying David, is to dwell in the house of God forever. If I had one thing, that's what I'd pick. One thing. Also, we hear the Psalms sing about how it is better to have one day in the courts of God's temple than to have a thousand days anywhere else. Pick one place, the best place. Better be one day in God's temple than be a thousand in that place. So the people of Israel reminded that, yes, their Messiah, little m, Messiah, but also the big M Messiah would redeem them and protect them and sustain them, but that it would actually be the presence of the Lord which would ultimately be how, how the Messiah would do this. The great Messiah, Jesus Christ, would actually save his people by being the presence of God for them. He was the temple. He was God in the flesh, and he would give them God's presence. Now, for food, back to David, for food, all that was able to sustain David and those entrusted to his care, it was the showbread or the bread of presence. Now, if you haven't memorized and have this, a, 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 a tabernacle or, or a tent temple a diagram or diorama in your house, uh, what the bread of presence was, it was a, a part, one of these, these ceremonial pieces of the temple. It was ceremonial but real bread that was baked and then it was set out in the temple every week. Signified a number of things, but one of them was a meal with the Lord. Yes, the temple was the place where sacrifices were offered to pay for sins, where the debt of their sin was paid for. Yes, where the wages of sin were paid and the wages of sin was death, which is why all that blood was spilled continually in the temple. So in that way, it was like a courthouse where debt was paid. Official legal duties were done. But the Lord would also design his temple to show the goal of these transactions. The sacrifices that were paid for sin, what is the goal? The goal is Fellowship. The goal is a meal with God. 
as his sons and daughters. Yes, there is legal work to do when a child is adopted. There's judges to stand before. Legal proclamations to be declared. But the goal, in many ways, is not to get to the courthouse, but to get to the dining room table. To eat with the one who adopted you. This was the the bread, the bread which signified that God was there to dwell with his people. This was the bread which David was provided with. This is the bread, the only bread. When he's about to go into exile, this is the only bread that he has provided. And it's no mistake, it's no accident. It was not ordinary bread. I mean, in many ways, it was literally ordinary bread. It wasn't ordinary. In fact, it couldn't be treated as ordinary. One way that it was kept extraordinary was that it was limited to only priests who could eat it. And I hope you'd realize that if it was treated as ordinary, it would not have the wonderful sustaining and nourishing effect that it would have on its people because it wouldn't then preach to them about God's presence and fellowship with them. And that's why David and his men could only eat if they were ceremonial, ceremonially clean, which included a number of things, one of which meant abstaining from sexual activity, not forever, but for that period of time before. And so the purpose of the bread of presence, the showbread, was to be an ex- extraordinary, and it was to nourish, to feed, sustain, and give life to the people of God by the message that was preached by it. Yes, sacrifices are necessary. You need sacrifice. You should be grateful that God provided sacrifice for sins. Death of someone else instead of you. But don't forget the sacrifices are a means to the end, which is fellowship with your God. So David, the little M Messiah, and his people were in need of food, but they're also in need of protection. But no ordinary weapons are available. So just like the bread is extraordinary that he received, so too was the weapon provided them. It was Goliath's sword. Every young boy in Israel knew about Goliath's sword. I'm sure they all knew how much it weighed and how how big it was. If you grew up in the church, there's a good chance you once dreamed of holding Goliath's sword as a trophy for slaying him. And it was a trophy of the victory which was won without a sword. A victory that was won by the name of the Lord. And so this is no coincidence that it is these things that were provided to David and his people who had entrusted themselves into his care while they were in exile. While they were in exile... They had provisions which came from the house of God. They were fed by the house of God while they were in exile. They could, in fact, enjoy the house of God even while they weren't there in exile. They could enjoy the presence of God even though they were not in the temple. They had food and protection coming from the Lord's presence. 
Now, this is true as well as we are also people who have entrusted our lives to not a little M Messiah, but to the great and true and final Messiah. And he provides us with nourishment and protection while we are in the wilderness. And these are not ordinary means of protection and food that we have. The Messiah is supplied with provisions to sustain and protect us, the people whose lives have been entrusted to his care. So he's going to sustain his church in the wilderness, in exile. He will feed her. Not with ordinary food, though. He will feed her. He's also going to protect her, but it's not going to be with the kinds of food and protection which men are used to using. She will be sustained by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, from God's word. She will be guarded and protected, not from swords, but she will be protected from false teaching and lies that, tried, that threaten her faith in the Lord, but she will also be protected by the sword that comes out of the mouth of the great Messiah, which is his word. Bread and guns will not protect the church of the great Messiah. But the presence of God will and the word of God will. Which is why we gather each week to be fed by the word of Christ to sustain us in the wilderness. And to have its promises and commands protect us from false teaching that would rob us of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has promised to care for and to protect all those entrusted to his care while they are in exile until he brings them home. So brothers and sisters, do not see your exile, your sojourn in this world, in a world that hates the Lord and is committed to hatred against the Messiah, do not see this world of pain and sorrow and fear. Do not see this as a sign that the Lord is not guarding you and not sustaining you. He did this for those who entrusted their lives to David, to the first David, while they were in exile. How much more will he do this for those who have been entrusted into the great son of David? He provides and protects them in extraordinary ways because we are his responsibility. Brings us to our second point, which is the people of the king. Who are the people who are entrusted to this man? We've already referenced them. There's this group that's around David that he's feeding with the provisions he's got from the temple and he's protecting with the sword which he gets from the temple. So what can be said of them? If you're going to summarize them, what would you say? What would you say if you had a group of people from Transcona? What would you say summarizes them? Be careful, don't insult anybody. You might say they have pink flamingos on their lawn. You might say something about their income. You might say something about their, their general intellectual capabilities in a positive way, of course. Are they marked with wealth? How do you, how do you summarize them? And, and so we're going to look, how is this group that's entrusted to the care of the Messiah how, how are they summarized, this group? It's about 400 men. Let's read from, let's continue reading, starting at verse 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul 
and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So now he's outside of the land of Israel. He's officially in exile. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Do they, did they not sing to one another of him in, in, in dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them and, in, and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who... And, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And they left with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad uh, said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. We'll stop there. So we see that it is not a compliment. It would not have been a compliment at that particular time to be called one of David's people. You're one of David's people. That would not have been a compliment at that time. David was accused of being crazy because he pretended to be crazy in order to escape with his life. Imagine the kind of despair that you'd have to be in to save your life in that particular way. And so not only was David persona non grata, a person who didn't want to be, a person as a person, you, you didn't want to be known as loving this man. But also those who were gathered with him as well were not people that you would want to associate with. They were not marked as the best, but they were marked as people who were in distress. They were in debt. They were bitter in soul. Those who felt they had nothing to lose joined in with him. And he did not turn them away. There was no standard level of wealth or having your life together. These were not all, you could say, positive people. This was the people whom the Lord first attached to this little M, Messiah, whose reign is a foreshadowing of the reign of Jesus Christ. And he was pleased to be their commander to take responsibility for them. Now, what would the Lord be teaching Israel with these events? When this word was first delivered to Israel, when the book of 1 Samuel was first delivered to Israel, what would he have been teaching them through these events and then also his word which recorded these events? The first thing is that those 
who were not in need would not likely be drawn to the Lord's great Messiah when he came. That those who consider themselves pretty self-sufficient would miss or even reject and hate the great Messiah when he did come. The Messiah is provided for God's people not to show how strong and worthy they are, but to provide redemption for them in their weakness. This is certainly true in later days when when good kings reigned in David's line, when they inherited his throne. Lots of bad kings, every once in a while a good king. And and we would say that these reigns were glorious and noteworthy, the, the reigns of men like Josiah and Joash. These were great and glorious and noteworthy reigns because of the moral bankruptcy that Israel was in when they took that throne, when Judah was in, when they took that throne. They were needed, these king's reigns were especially needed because of Israel's sin and because of Israel's weakness. And those who recognized the need were ones who would have been most glad for the good reigns of those sons of David, Joash and Josiah especially. But what was true in part for David and Josiah and Joash was especially true for their greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was only those who recognized their personal moral bankruptcy and who were broken over their sin who loved that he was the Messiah. Jesus said, that he came not for the healthy but the sick. And the irony is that everyone is sick and even dead in this sense. But only some people saw the need of it. So the Pharisees at the time of Jesus' life were hoping the Messiah's reign would gather and identify those who had something to boast in. But the only ones who are gathered to Jesus Christ are those who realize they have Nothing to boast in. Being Christian does not equate to a badge of honor. It is, in fact, an admission that you are weak and guilty, morally bankrupt in the eyes of God, deserving of the wrath of God, which would be rightly poured out in hell. But that God, in his mercy, provided you with a Messiah who would take your debt upon himself, and who actually would assume your debt to God and would then share his inheritance with you. If you still feel you've got to demonstrate your worthiness to God to belong to Christ, you do not understand the gospel. It's very common for me to talk to men who want me to know as the pastor of their, all their maturity and Christian accomplishments And they think that I'll maybe be more interested in being their pastor and welcoming them into the church. But they don't get the gospel. Ironically, what I'm looking for in terms of joining the church or maturity is a man who recognizes his own bankruptcy and loves how Christ supplied that need. And so I fear another way we miss the design for God for the office of Messiah, is that we're inclined to spend our fellowship time with believers who have their act together in our eyes. 
Now, there's a sense in which that's okay if you're looking to have men and women influence you and, and help you walk with the Lord in maturity. That is wisdom. But to think that Christian fellowship, feasting on the gospel together in a home or a coffee shop or worship service, it's only possible with those mature people. That's to misunderstand the gospel. And I fear that that would have further negative implications, such as not sharing fellowship with your own children because they are far too below what you need in terms of fellowship. One more way I feel we, we might miss this is by assuming mature believers are not in need of fellowship. You see people in the church who you see is quite mature and you think they, they wouldn't need they wouldn't enjoy it, they wouldn't want it, they wouldn't miss it. But it has been my experience, and this is proved, this actually proves scripture, that those believers who are the most mature are the ones who are most aware of their need of and longing for fellowship, feasting on the word of God, which is their sustenance, and it is their protection from the attacks of the devil. So do not think a sister is too immature to delight with her in the gospel, but do not think that you or another are too mature to need it. Because that's almost the same as saying you're not a Christian. Christ Jesus, David's greater son, who fulfills David's mission, and the promises of his reign, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so those who miss their own weakness would miss the great Messiah when he came. But this is also true when he is now offered by the preaching of the gospel. Those who reject him do not have eyes to see their own great need. But for all who do, he will cast away none. No debt is too big, no sin is too great. He saves the wicked who entrust their lives to him, bears the wrath of God for their sin on the cross, and he becomes their king. Brings us to our third point. The dangers of belonging to the king. So we've got provisions for the people and now we have evidence that they need these provisions. <laughs> they need strength and they need protection. There are risks for being with David, the little M Messiah. Let's continue reading in verse 6 of chapter 22. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, 
who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. The king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. We're going to end there for now. So we see that it is for good reason that the people of the Messiah needed provisions and protection. We see how this works through. It progresses. First, David is the object of Saul's wrath. We see that David is hated by Saul. He's throwing spears at him. He wants to kill him. He's hunting him. Then those who outwardly support him, remember Jonathan also gets a a spear thrown at him. And then also this group of 400 men But the rage against the Lord's Messiah extends to those who do not actively hate him and his people. Essentially, the only thing that these people were guilty of was not supporting David, as those uh, in Saul's servants, but simply just not opposing David. Even Ahimelech claims that he didn't know that he was opposing Saul. Saul is furious not only with Jonathan and David, but also those who knew about David's covenant with Jonathan and didn't tell him. These are men who did not make a covenant with David, didn't make a covenant with the anointed king. His anger burns against his servants for not killing David. And Doeg the Edomite doesn't want Saul to hate him. In fact, he wants Saul's approval So he murders the whole group of priests present. And he doesn't stop there. He apparently, with Saul's approval, kills every living being in the town that surrounded the house of God, Nob. We began to see this last week, but here it is on full display. 
There is no neutral position. This helps to expose the stupidity of those who try to earn the favor of the world by remaining silent about their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that will help me avoid being their enemy. The throwing accusations and hatred and trying to ruin the people who say publicly that they believe in the gospel, maybe that'll protect me from them is just to be quiet. And it might work for a while, but it is foolish because it's not enough for the world's hatred of Christ. They will demand that you also hate and insult him. So some in the church try that too. They, they will find some Christians who are, or they'll say, is not as loving as them, not as tactful. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with them about what they're saying. It's just, you know, why, why do they have to say it without tact? They're not as quiet about their faith. And then they'll point to them saying, we hate them too. Don't you love me now? Or perhaps by rejecting parts of the Bible that require more faith, things like miracle or accounts of God's work in history. And they'll say things like, you know, those backwater, uneducated, nincompoop Christians believe that stuff, but I don't. I'm like you. Now, judging the church to care for its holiness is a beautiful thing, and that is required, actually, of you by the Lord. But being critical of other Christians to curry favor with the world is a dirty trick which the Lord despises, makes you a coward, and ultimately doesn't even work. Because you're going to be forced to choose to identify with Christ Jesus as your Messiah. And part of that is to publicly identify with his people. This is one of the reasons why the Lord has designed the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the triune God, as a public gathering together with his people. Saying, they belong to me. I belong to them because we all belong to Christ. The only place to hide will be in Christ himself. Your life and your business, your career, your family may be the cost. The devil and the world hates Christ, which adds dangers to you in this life. You are going to die anyway. And not one moment before the Lord's plan for your life but this world is only passing away, but the kingdom of the Messiah will endure forever and ever and ever. And so you may lose these things. But the Lord has provided sustenance and strength and protection for your soul. And Christ will hold you through these dangers and he will bring you safely home. And that brings us to our fourth point, which will function as a conclusion. And that's this, the hope which belongs to the king and his people. The hope which belongs to the king and his people. We see here in this passage the hint of what's going on in David's heart. Through these events, we see his affliction, and we see his affection for these people who were murdered for supporting him, and whose lives are now in danger for identifying with him publicly. And I want you to notice how David, the first Messiah with an eternal throne, he considers the suffering of his people as his responsibility, and he considers their lives as his responsibility. Let's continue reading in verse 20 to the end of the chapter. And so, the sons of Ahimelech, the priests, have all been murdered. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahadab, 
named Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Did you notice the grief over this, this Messiah, over the deaths of his people who identified with him, and how he takes responsibility for those who have entrusted their lives to him? With me, you shall be in safekeeping. And now all the gifts that were provided uh, to David from the temple, now these are used in service to protect the people who have entrusted their lives to his care. He owns this. In a sense, they are hiding in the Lord's Messiah. Because the Lord has made covenant promises to that Messiah, right? You, you will reign. And so they're hiding in the promises that were made to the Messiah. They're joining themselves to him. God's promises will not fail to the Messiah, so I'm attaching myself to him. They are actually swept up in those promises. They are now their promises. I know that I will suffer with him now, but when he is glorified, I know that I will share in that glory. We see, though, more of David's heart and his hope. What was he experiencing while in exile? We see that as he pens psalms that were written during these times. Psalm 52 was written by David. And it was a response to the slaughter of the priests and citizens of Nob. This is how David worshipped and led his people in worship when he got word from Abiathar of what Doeg had done. Let's read Psalm 52. To the choir master, a maskal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty men? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will praise your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. First, I want you to notice that it is the steadfast love of God that David puts, and for himself, but also for the people entrusted him, he puts their hope in a love sworn by an oath by God. Second, I want you to notice that the confidence is that though the enemies of Messiah and his people laugh at them for trusting the Lord, 
one day they will be the ones who look foolish for not trusting in the Lord. They will be destroyed. And so this question is, is it good to long for the wicked persecutors of the church to receive justice by receiving the wrath of God in hell? Is this wrong to long for that? This is part of David's hope and his, his men as they're being attacked, trusting in the promises of God. Is Part of their hope is that these men will be destroyed by receiving the wrath of God in hell. Is it right for us to hope in such a way? Yes. But only if your thirst for justice would be satisfied, perhaps more satisfied, if they repented and believed in Christ and the wrath of God for their sins was placed on Christ and satisfied on the cross. It is good to cry out for justice and punishment. This is part of our hope that justice will be satisfied. And lastly, I, I want you to notice the location of the hope which David the Messiah leads his people to sing about. Did you notice the location of his hope was the house of God? We began by seeing how the Messiah and his people were provided food and protection from the house of God. He was there. And we end by rejoicing that their hope is to be in the house of God, to be so in the house of God that they're like an olive tree planted in it. They've got roots going down deep in the house of God. An olive tree might as well be an eternal tree compared to some of the trees we have in Manitoba that last only a decade before rotting. David's not a guest here. He is a planted tree. I'm not moving from God's presence. And so then what is the message that the Lord is teaching his people who are now in exile for entrusting themselves to the Messiah? I want you to notice that, that the tense of the line in that song, it is not a future, but present. Not I will be a tree in the house of God, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. That was David's delight even in when, when he was in exile. His delight was to be in the presence of God, even though he was in exile far from the temple, even far from the land, he was hated and scorned. Having, become, having to become insane to save his life, and anyone who supports him is murdered in cold blood, and so it was for those who entrusted themselves to David as the little um, Messiah. But in the wilderness, even there, he and those who belonged to him were supplied by the house of God, by the Lord's presence. And they knew that one day God's covenant promises would be fulfilled, and that David would reign for the good of the people that God had given to him. David said at the end of our text today, with me you shall be in safekeeping. And that is a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of the promise which his great son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Messiah, makes to those who have entrusted their lives to him while they wait for the covenant promises to be fulfilled. So brothers and sisters, it is, so it is true of you. If you've trusted in David's greater son, the great and final Messiah, Jesus Christ, there is great danger for this life in identifying with him. But his very presence will sustain you and protect you 
and he will bring you into the presence of the Lord to dwell forever. Because he's already atoned for your sin. David, a Messiah, took responsibility for the lives of those entrusted to his care, and so much more will the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't turn anyone away who comes to him for salvation. And he supplies them with every good thing needed during their earthly pilgrimage. To sustain them and to guard them from attacks of his enemies. So on the surface, it might look like a more dangerous thing to identify with the Messiah. To belong to him when the world hates him, but there could truly be no safer place than to be with the Lord's anointed in the house of the Lord, eating freshly baked bread to sustain us and welcome us and remind us of our adoption to the dining room table of the Lord God Almighty, which was purchased for us with the imperishable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... um, We rejoice that even though we are exiles, we are beloved exiles. And Lord, we long for your kingdom to come. We long for a world that does not hate you, but that loves you and recognizes the worth of Jesus, who bows to him as their king. Lord, where his justice will be perfectly done, Lord, we long for that. Lord, we are grateful that you have qualified us for that not by making us good, not by noticing our goodness, Lord, but by giving us Christ's goodness and him taking our sin off of us and bearing it himself. And we're grateful that we have Christ's qualifications for the kingdom. Lord, we're also grateful that we have his protection and his empowering, sustaining word while we wait for that. We're grateful that it is you who holds us and keeps us and will bring us safely home. And Lord, I pray that you would stir up a longing in our heart to be in your presence, to live with you in your house forever. Lord, I pray that that would be our hope and our confidence, that that is exactly where Christ has placed us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.